So is everyone here familiar with the the Perkea vote, Ethics of the Fathers? Yes, I am. I even have a copy of it. Really? Yes, we, I used to, at the last synagogue I belonged to, we had Torah study, which we did every Sunday. And after we got finished with the Torah, we said, instead of starting again, let's do something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we did a we did Perkea vote for a while. Mm-hmm. So uh, Perkea vote, just the the, the the overview of the you know the historical you know weird is this book. This is this is a book written about the year 180 with the rest of the Mishnah. Mm-hmm. Mishnah is a compilation of 63 different books uh, written on everything everything Jewish. It comprises mm-hmm. all of the Torah, mm-hmm. everything. It's like the it's the oral Torah, and the oral Torah was written down. That that is that that was written down initially as the Mishnah. Mm. A few hundred years later, it was written. It was it was expanded upon in the Gemara, the Talmud. But the Mishnah is uh, comprised of, of sixty three books, separated into six different sections. And one of the books is called Pirkei Avot, or Chapters or Ethics of of the Fathers. And this is a book dedicated solely towards the study, the pursuit of of ethical perfection. It's a book that talks about solely about about Musar. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I thought that maybe we could tr- maybe try to attempt to have a, a textual or, or source-based discussion of Musar and using the, the, the ethics of the fathers as, as a guidebook. Now, particularly uh, in, you know, relevant is, is the idea of the time period that we're in right now between Pesach and Shavuot, the Pesach is Passover, the holiday we just celebrated, and the upcoming Jewish holiday of receiving the Torah. That's, that's coming up in a couple of weeks. There's been a, an ancient Jewish tradition, I've seen it even, even listed in this book, this book was written you know, 500 years ago, an ancient Jewish tradition of studying Pirkei or chapters of the fathers, specifically in this time. So I said, hey, it's a Musar book, it's a Musar class, and we're talking about ethics, Let's uh, and, and now is the time where people traditionally study this this work. Why don't we, uh, you know, why don't we do it? Uh, you know, a little bit try to see, you know, dip our toe in the water and see um, if we could have, if we could gain, if we could grow, um, you know, in our muster, in our learning, uh, in our studying, using using the book, the ethics of the fathers. Good. 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 Okay. So now, just quickly about the the structure of the book. It's a very I would say it's very different than every, every other book, Jewish books or non-Jewish books, in, in the way it's structured. Uh, it starts off with a delineation of the, the, you know, the path of tradition, tradition of how the Jewish tradition has been passed on from generation to generation, which is interesting. We'll talk about that. What, what, what's the relevance of that? Um, and it takes scholars, uh, leaders, you know, great Jewish thinkers from you know, from you know a five hundred year period, and says what were their uh, Musar lessons? What was you know what was uh, there was this great rabbi? His name was Shimon the Righteous, right? He's the, he's the first one, or he's the second one, really. And he lived three hundred years before the Common Era, and he would say, etc. etc. This was his Musar ethical you know uh, idea that he that that he particularly espoused to. So uh, there's going to be about 60 different uh, sages that are all going to be represented in this in this book, uh, in Ethics of the Fathers. Uh, there's six chapters. There's about between you know 15 and 25 different snippets in each one of those chapters, 
And what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to take you know take a, a little piece of it and we're going to try to analyze it, and we're going to ask questions. And now it's just us three, mm-hmm. so Ed, I expect questions from you, Jerry, Petro. We're going to say, okay, fine. What does this mean? And try to dig deeper and deeper and deeper and see how deep we can get. See what different ideas. Mm-hmm. And we're going to take every word and weigh it and say, does this make sense? What are the problems with it? Are there any questions? Uh, you know. Etc. Etc. Until we'll, maybe we'll see if we come up with some unbelievable ideas to help us become better people and uh, to help us grow. So, so, so that's what I would, um, what I'm looking, what, what I'm interested in doing today. How, how say you? Good. Sounds, Sounds good. good. Sounds good. If I don't, I would have brought my copy of Perky with me. <laughs> okay. So I wanted to give a little bit of an introduction. Why specifically uh, was this tradition accepted amongst the Jewish people to study this work, this book, uh, dedicated solely to towards ethical perfection? Why specifically at the time period between Pesach, between Passover and Shavuot? It's a very, it's a very curious time. It's, a, it's like these, you know, fifty days, you know, seven weeks, uh, where we count the, the Sefirat Omer. It's the beginning of spring. It's the uh, beginning of the Jewish uh, liberation towards the Jewish acceptance of the Torah at Sinai, 50 days building up. Every day we're building a step further towards the ultimate goal of getting the Torah. Why specifically during these times are we so focused on ethical perfection that we, as a national entity, as a national group, we accept upon ourselves the, 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 the responsibility of focusing on Unethical development. What do you say, Jerry? Yeah, I, I didn't understand that far back. What was the problem with the society they lived in that they needed that? <laughs> you saying you saying what was wrong? Maybe the societies were we were just fine, and, yeah. and why they need ethical perfection? Yeah. Well, the answer to that is is that every human being is flawed. Mm-hmm. By definition, if you're human, you have flaws. If you're not. If you don't have any flaws, you're not a human. You're an angel, right? You're perfect. No one's perfect, and that's why we're here. That and that's the and that's the, the Weltanschauung. That's the worldview that the Jewish people and our our Torah teachings have have you know have broadcast to the whole world. Is that we're here with a purpose. We're here with a mission. We're here to perfect ourselves, perfect our communities, and and perfect mankind. The whole idea of tikkun olam. I'm sure you've heard of that. Well, what does that mean? Fixing the world. Why? Because that is, for the past three millennia, that's what the Jewish people have been telling humanity. We're here to fix ourselves, and we're here to fix the entire, you know, the entire, and the whole Jewish idea, the Jewish uh, national um, responsibility is to perfect mankind. So yes, people were uh, in need of ethical perfection, and people, and you know, even 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, and 2,000 years ago. Uh huh. You know, we we think that uh, decadence and immorality and is you know and the is modern and the you know the degradation of 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 belief systems and moral right. That we we think it's just it's it's a new thing. Hey, the fifties, everyone got married when they were twenty five and they stayed married till the you know right. Mm -hmm. That and and then and then you know in a large way that is true. But if you look, and now it's an interesting thing, if you take a look at many of the Jewish of the response literature, response literature, Jewish literature is, is, is 18th century Jewish literature, like Torah-based literature, 
amazing, amazing, amazing amount of, of volume, voluminous literature written on every aspect of, 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 of Torah life and, 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 and practice. And part, and part of the things they talk about is, is, is responsa, questions, questions and answers. And I was reading this week a question about the most immoral, like just shockingly immoral stories that were happening in some little, in some little shtetl, some little village in the middle of Europe, yeah. you know, and there was like a whole litany of adulterous episodes that happened in this one little town. And I think that this is the you know this is the 1700s. This is a time where everyone was pious. Same place in the Ukraine, <laughs> right? This is you know this is everyone's pious and you know and you know all's well. We haven't yet been exposed to greater society. The Jewish people were living, and yeah, you know people for all eternity have been flawed from day one. Adam was flawed. His children were flawed. And uh, and that's the story of mankind. And you know we're here because we we're Jewish because we say yes. You don't have to stay flawed. And you talk to Christians and they say, man is flawed and there's nothing he can do about it. Nothing. This is a major disagreement that what we have, the Jews have, with the Christians. They say man is flawed and there's nothing he can do about it. Original sin. And there's nothing he can. Do and, and we say that's not true. And we have we have evidence that we're right because you you meet people. The people that actually work on their character, and they are not flawed, or they're much less flawed than other people. So we have the data, you know, the to, to back that we're right. It is possible for you to change yourself, mm. but 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 the reality of, of mankind, you know, having um, shortcomings and ethical shortcomings, you know, has been around, has been very 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 popular for a very long time. You know, think about the Romans. This book was this book was written. I had this is a copy, the Hebrew copy of the book, Perkevot, Ethics of the Fathers. This book was written under, under Roman persecution. How how ethical were, were the Romans? Terrible, unimaginably unethical, at least by today's standards. You know, petty criminals. You you you're shoplifting a belt from J C Penney. They put you next day into you know into in, in, into the Colosseum to be ripped apart by you know by a line or by some other criminal. Mm-hmm. Crazy, ten thousand, ten thousand people in one of these in one day they've had slaughtered in these Colosseums. Ten thousand people with perfume being sprayed everywhere so people wouldn't gag from all that uh, blood. Seriously. And this is a highly developed, highly sophisticated. That was it. Was their circus, right? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, and this is you know, this is a time where where immorality was just was just reigning. Mm. So yes, and as Jews, we're no different. We also have problems, um, and as and but we but we have the imperative of 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 trying to rectify those problems. So yes, so what we're going to do is. We're going to take one Mishnah, the first Mishnah, and we're going to rip it to shreds. I'm going to say, this is the question, this is the question, this is making sense, this is making sense, and we're trying to make sense. Because every word is really a lesson. And every word is telling you something. Why did it say this and not say that? There's a lot of wisdom, a lot of ideas that are, you know, that are, that are, you know, they fill every single word, every single sentence of, of these, um, uh, of these, of these, of, of this work. Now, just quickly, 
an idea that I wanted to share here is that I think one of the reasons um, why we uh, we specifically take this time before accepting the Torah, before we accept the Torah every year in Shavuot, in the holiday of Shavuot, we, we focus on ethical perfection. I think there's a deep lesson behind that. Yes, yeah. I, I never answered the question. You have an answer? What's, what's your answer? No, I was saying it's because it was between the time, it focused on the time between they left Egypt yeah. and when they received the Torah at Mount Sinai. Okay. And they were... I mean, they were questioning Moses at every, you know, every turn, yeah. every turn during mm-hmm. the whole thing. When Moses, when Moses was up in Mount Sinai, they rebelled. They built the golden calf. You know, they were. You're saying not, that they needed. They were not ethical at all mm-hmm. between the time they left Egypt and the time they received the Torah. Mm-hmm. That that's a very good point, and that and that and you know that is you know, you know that's pertinent to what what he brought up, what, what Jerry brought up, but. Um, I think that we can make it much more practical for ourselves. Means yes, there was a, there's a historical reality behind the fact that the Jews at this specific point in you know in history were very immoral, or needed some ethical uh, you know fixing you know perfection. But on top of that, for us living in 2013, we're also one experience accepting the Torah. And the, what you need to what you need to know the prerequisite that you have to have before you're able to accept the philosophical, theological, uh, intellectual ideas of the Torah, you have to make sure that you are a vessel that's worthy of, of holding the Torah. Just like the Torah, when you put the Torah, you always put it in, 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 in the sanctuary. You put it in a respectable place. You make it nice and make it beautiful. So too, if we want to bring the Torah into our hearts. If we want to really integrate these ideas, integrate these ideas into ourselves, we have to make sure that we're a vessel, we're a receptacle that's, that, that the Torah is, it, it will feel comfortable in. If you're someone who needs uh, ethical fixing or you have serious ethical shortcomings, you are not worthy of, of being a, a vessel that's, that's holding the Torah. When we're preparing... To accept the Torah, we have to make sure what we're doing is, is we're, you know, we're, we're building the sanctuary, we're building the 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 the, the Arona Kodesh, the, uh, the, the 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 you know the the ark, so to speak, that holds the Torah. So I, I think it takes it takes this idea and says ethical perfection. Why are we doing that? So you want to become better people. Why? There's the idea of becoming a better person, but additionally, there's also the factor of if you want to accept theological, philosophical ideas, you can't do that if you're if you're someone who has a severe ethical shortcomings. Mm-hmm. Nice idea, huh? Mm-hmm. Chapters of the Fathers. Why is it called Chapters of the Fathers? That's the first question I was expecting everyone to, to ask me. Why is it called Chapters of the Fathers? Yeah. I would say, or, or ethics, it's either ethics or chapters. Why would we call ethics of the fathers, not ethics of, uh, I don't know, of the Torah, or ethics of the sages? Or, uh, why fathers? Pray tell. Why is this book called Ethics of the Fathers? It should say Jewish ethics, or Torah ethics, or 
moral ethics or ethical ethics. My, my question would be, who, who are the fathers? Is it, is it Moses and the other prophets? Is it, or is it the authors you know, of this of the work? Or is it the forefathers? That's another, that's another question. I don't know. Which fathers are talking about? Yeah. So, who actually scribed all the Mishnah? I mean, the Mishnah. Yes, the, the, that's uh, Rabbi Judah the Prince. If you heard that ter- that that name, he was the, uh, the he was a rabbi who lived at the end of the second century of the Common Era, and he was one who redacted the entire Mishnah. He he collected a thousand rabbis and they uh, assembled all of the wisdom, all of the accrued knowledge of the Jewish people, and redacted it and codified it over many many years in a way that could be transmitted for posterity. Mm-hmm. Hey, your brother last night was saying the whole mission was written in code and you can't really understand it, which is why they had to go write the Talmud to explain Yeah, they want to write as little as possible. They want to write as terse as possible. Really? Yeah, because there is a Torahitic prohibition against writing down the oral Torah. So you're not allowed to do it, but they had, they had to do it because otherwise the Torah would have been forgotten. Mm. Because, you know, Roman persecution... Um, Roman restrictions on on learning, Roman disbanding of central Jewish authority, Roman exile, dispersion. The Jews aren't unified in one location. If they don't, if they're not unified, if they're not, if they're not one group, it's very easy to forget the Torah. It's very easy if you don't, if you don't, if you live in a community that doesn't have a, Jew, a temple, you know, or or some sort of Jewish institution. It's very easy to assimilate. Mm-hmm. Right, so um, so what they concocted is a way to have like a portable homeland, which is a, a intellectual homeland to take the to take the the Torah, and people should that people shouldn't forget it uh, by making it available in print, and they did that by writing the writing down the Mishnah, okay. and this book of Ethics of the Fathers is the ethical aspect, part of the ethical aspects of. You know, of, uh, you know, the Jewish ideas were, that were written down at that t- at that point in time. Okay, so let's. Uh, there were There were sixty-three. Yes, sixty-three in in six different sections, and, and incidentally, the names of the sections are agriculture, Zraim, and all the laws of agriculture, all the laws of of of, of planting in the land of Israel. You know, there's lots of laws that talk about it, agricultural laws. Time-based laws. It's the next section. Like, uh, what do you do in Pesach? What do you? How do you shake a lulav? Right. What happens to Yom Kippur? Right. Shabbat. The laws of Shabbat. All things which are which are which are part of the calendar, part of the week, uh, are in that section. So Megillah, right? Ampurim. That has its own, its own section. Its own its own book. One of the sixty three is called Megillah. One of them is called Rosh Hashanah. One of them is called Yom Kippur. One of them is called Sukkot. One of them is called Pesach. Right? Different times of the year. And, you know, they have different uh, uh, different books which tell you everything you know about, about, that, set, about, that, uh, about that portion. Then you have the laws of damages. My ox kills your ox. Right? I find, a, a, you know, all, they're all dealing with interpersonal uh, contracts. The laws of contracts. The laws of buying and selling property. The laws of um, very well-organized, highly highly detailed, you know, it's very sophisticated. You find something. I give something to I give something to Ed to watch. I give him my iPod and he watches it and it breaks. Four different kinds of people that watch. Did I pay him or not? Was he borrowing it? Was he using it or not? Was he watching it for me? 
highly, highly, highly sophisticated um, and detailed and very, very specific laws regards regards to damages. The laws of marriage, marriage, divorce, uh, marriage responsibilities, Leverite marriages, the laws of an adulterous woman. Right. That's the, that's the fourth section. Fifth section is is, is laws of of kachim, of, of korbanot, of sacrifices in the temple. And lastly is the, the sixth order of the Mishnah. The sixth section um, is is the laws of tarot, the, the laws of purity and impurity. So these are six different sections. Each section has a bunch of different books out of the sixty-three books that comprise the Mishnah. Highly organized, highly sophisticated. Now. Which one of these six? He said, there, one section dealt with sacrifices in the temple, but this was written 200 years after the destruction of the temple. Very good. Well, so. that's, that's, a, that's a very good point that you, that, you know, that, you bring, that you brought up, but it's still part of the Torah. And when, you know, when we read Leviticus, it's still, it's still part of Leviticus. Leviticus, we're up to Leviticus now. All it's talking about are things that are not pertinent to us anymore. We don't take it, when you were the Torah out there, Right? Last week, you didn't cut out the sections that weren't no. uh, pertinent to us right now. You know, how many mitzvahs in the Torah? 613. How many of them are pertinent to us today in America? Not a lot of them. Only like 110 of them. Mm-hmm. Right? Or even, or even even 2,000 years ago, they weren't all pertinent because some were only for men, some were only for women. Very good. But it's still part of the Torah. Yeah. And it's still, you know, and it's still... And we we say is the yes the temple will be rebuilt, and the Jews will come back to Israel. And as crazy as it sounds now to build a Jewish temple on top of the uh, on top of Mount, uh, you know Temple Mount, mm-hmm. as crazy as that seems now, it was a lot crazier 150 years ago to say the Jews are going to reestablish a state in Israel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? We say it, and we and and yes, there will be uh, uh, their sacrifices re, re, reinstituted in, in the temple when it when it when it's rebuilt. We're halfway there. We already have Israel. We're within a stone's throw of uh, of the Temple Mount. So yes, even though they're not pertinent now, and they weren't pertinent two hundred years ago, but they were still part of the Torah that we still we still we still learned and we still focus on. It. And even today, today there's not so many people who know those who study those things in depth because they're not so pertinent. But we still we still give it lots of value, at least intellectual philosophical value. Now let me ask y'all: if you had to guess, if you had to guess. The book called Ethics of the Fathers is one of the Mishnas, one of the 63 books of the Mishnah. Now, this, these 63 books were broken into six different sections, six different orders. Agricultural, time-based, damages, uh, marriage and divorce, sacrifices, and purity and impurity. Which one of these six sections should the book, Ethics of the Fathers, be placed into? The, the law? The, I don't know. Huh? You, you following the question? Does it necessarily fall into just one of them, or can it overlap? Yeah. No, it's, you know, it's these, these 63 books were broken up into, into six different broader categories. Okay. So time-based. Mm-hmm. So no. so it's certainly not time-based. We agree on that. Because it's it's at all times. It's not it's not bound to time. Right? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, every day of the week you have to have ethical perfection. You wouldn't say that it's time based. It's not time bound. Which one of these six sections should the book re- re- related to ethics be placed into? 
to do with uh, the law, the books of, of law? Yeah, but they're all law. But which yeah. section of law? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's not, is it agricultural? Well, I mean, no. it could it could be agriculture because in agriculture, under agriculture, you have tithing. Yeah. You have okay, so maybe agricultural. We said it's for sure not uh, time time bound, mm-hmm. right? What about damages? It could be could be it could, it could be, be damages. Damage. Yeah. Ethics involved. In okay, that. marriage and divorce. Certainly, ethics involved yeah. in that. Okay, so it's one of those three uh, sacrifices. Mm, I don't think so. Maybe. Well, maybe it's like yeah. it's like the sacrifice. Okay, just, okay maybe. Purity and impurity? Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so <laughs> now, so what's the reality? The reality is, is that the book of ethics is in the section dealing with damages. And every single commentator and every single people person who discusses this tractate, this section, this book, says, why, pray tell, uh, is the book re- relating to ethics placed in the section um, of the yeah. Why is it placed in the section of damages, along with my ox killing your ox and you losing your iPod in my house, mm-hmm. the laws of property, buying, buying and selling property, and the laws of, of 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 jurisprudence, and how does the court of law give uh, the capital different kinds of capital punishment, and how do we enforce the law? And, laws of debt and loans. Yeah, debt and loans, all those things. Ethics. Hmm. So I, um, it's an interesting thing. Hmm. So uh, in this book, authored by the Maharal, it was a 16th century a rabbi who lived in Prague, in uh, it was, was right now in Czechoslovakia. He says the book of damages makes sense, right? I steal from you, I have to pay it back to you, right? I, I break your thing. It's all logical. Everyone understands it. Ethics are logical as well. These are things that all make sense. These are requirements that make sense. That you you jive with it. You know when you when you hear that you have to be humble, you have to you know be appreciative. You have to be responsible. Those are things that make sense. Those are things that are logical. No less than damages. Um, what I was thinking is that maybe. Um, maybe the reason why the book of ethics was placed in the section dealing with damages is because every time there's damages, the whole book of it's all dealing with conflict, right? I want to or 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 two parties coming together. I want to buy your field. How do I do that? I, you know, how do I purchase things? Loss, debt, damages, right? Um, all those things are. There's always a conflict, or is a convergence of two different forces. I want to buy it from you, and you want to sell it to me. There's, yeah. yeah, there's always a conflict. There's always two different parties. I think that when we are challenged with ethical dilemmas, we're challenged in our lives with um, difficulties that we have, uh, personality-wise, and dealing with the challenges of life. There's always a conflict. It's always, what do I do? Do I do what's right or I do what feels better? Do I do what's right or I do what's easier? Do I do what's right or I do what's, you know, the thing that 
will make me forget about the challenges. No, not always mutually exclusive. Not necessarily, but there's always going to be a conflict. It's always a, we're always going to be placed in, in situations where um, we have things to do, you know, you, you know, and we're going to have to make decisions. And every day we're making, we're making hundreds of decisions. And I think maybe the subliminal message here is, is that when you make decisions, it's because you have opposing forces within you. You have your body and your soul. You have your, 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 you know, your, your Yetzir and your Yetzir Ra. You have your good and evil inclinations. And we have these struggles, these internal dilemmas all the time. Just like in damages, just like in areas of monetary disputes, there's two sides. There's always going to be two sides in areas of ethical uh, difficulties. I need something to keep in mind. Is that, you know, for the broader discussion relating to, to, to Musar, there's always going to be um, two sides to the story. You know, I wake up in the morning. My body wants, my body says go back to sleep, and my and, mm-hmm. and my neshama, my soul says wake up and let's tackle the day. Right? That, you know, that, 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 that's a classic example. Or I already had a bag of potato chips. Okay, I have another one. And <laughs> I kind of want to have another one, or I kind of want to see the bottom of the bag. Mm-hmm. All right, but I know it's not healthy and, and it's engorging and it's too, it's too much. Right? Another example. And there's countless of these, and we go through them every day. Conflicts, convergence of different forces. Okay, so let's uh, let's take a look at the first Mishnah. Now I have the uh, English copy, and I want to. I will read it first, and then I want to. I want to try to critically analyze uh, this Mishnah. So I have it here in English and in Hebrew. Uh, anyone here reads and understands Hebrew well? Mm-mm. You do. I do. <laughs> so I'll, we'll just read it in English. I'd this is, it, I would attempt it if it had vowels. Yeah, same thing. It's been too many years. I grew up in where I could, as a child, could, but not without vowels. I can't read it. Uh, yeah. Too hard. Yeah. So this I is the motion. Yeah. yeah. This is a very, very good translation. How do I know? Because I know the guy who translated it. Moshe Kabal Torah. Is it you, Mauni. Nah, I can't. Yeah. So I'll. We'll just read the English. Okay. What does it say? Moses received the Torah from Sinai and transmitted to Joshua. Joshua was Moses' disciple. We know that. Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, the prophets to the men of the great assembly. Okay, so we have a preamble here. And the preamble says, hey, the Torah, where does it come from? Well, Moses gave it to us from Sinai. And then Moses transmitted it to Joshua. And Joshua transmitted it to the prophets. And it's, the all, prophets. it's all done verbally. Well, so that, well it doesn't say. It, well, it doesn't say. It doesn't it. say either way. Mm-hmm. So that's a good question. What yeah. does Torah mean? Is it is it is it oral Torah? Is it written Torah? Yeah. Good question. That's question number one. Mm-hmm. Is it oral? You know, what does Torah mean? Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, mean. Good question. So Moses gets a Torah from Sinai. He gives it to Joshua. Joshua transmits it to the uh, the uh, the elders, the elders, the prophets, the prophets, the men of the great assembly. They said, who's they? The elders. Well, who do you think it is? Moses got the Torah from Sinai. He gave it to Joshua. Joshua to the elders. Elders to the prophets. Prophets to men of the great assembly. They said, who's they? The prophets, I would think. You think it's the prophets? Or the elders. Or or everybody, or all of the above. Mm -hmm. So they all said... 
they said three things. They, uh, it can't be Moses. Because well, it can't be Joshua. Well, Moses, well, Moses and Joshua mm -hmm. could be part of all of the above. But men of the great assembly. I'd say the great assembly. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah. And, uh. And if you actually read the next Mishnah, it becomes clear that, that that's correct. Mm -hmm. So we, we have a very, very quickly we're told there's a thousand years of Torah transmission. From Moses to the men of the Great Assembly. Boom, like that. A thousand right? years. Eh? A thousand years. Moses gets the Torah from Sinai. He gives it to Joshua. Joshua gives it to the prophets. What does prophets mean? Prophets en en encompasses uh, um, Joshua the elders. Elders live in the time of Moses as well. Elves the prophets. Prophets incorporates a time of, of yeah, eight, eight, nine hundred years. Yeah, from Joshua all the way down. From to Joshua all the way down to Ezra. Hmm. Right? All the way down to Ezra. Hmm. So, and I have, I have a, an outline here. Is, it, um, is the Great Assembly the Sanhedrin? It was sort of a precursor. So not really a precursor. Very similar. It was, yes, it was 120 men, not 70 men. But it's, it's, a, it's a very similar thing. Um, where it was, it, it was sort of like, like the council, the, you know, the Knesset in Israel. Hmm. The Knesset, right? Mm -hmm. What's it called? It's called a... It's called a Knesset. Yeah, it's Knesset. What does Knesset mean? It's a legislature. Okay. The Hebrew word for men of the great assembly is Knesset. Hmm. Assembly means Knesset. Hmm. And the reason why there's 120 members of the Knesset right now in Israel is because there were 120 members of the Knesset 2,400 years ago men of the great assembly. It was modeled after that. Hmm. The, the Hebrew word for men of the Great Assembly is Anshe Knesset. Men is, is Anshe. Knesset, uh, Hagdola, the Great Assembly. Oh, yeah. I see right there. You see? Anshe Knesset, Hagdola. Hagdola, yeah. Okay, so, uh, and they said three things. What they say? Thing number one, be deliberate in judgment. Thing number two, develop many disciples. And thing number three is make offense for the Torah. Make offense for the Torah. So, I, I think we could break down this Mishnah into, into really contain two parts. We have A, part number one is the preamble, which is the uh, delineation of the transmission of the Torah. Right? Moses got the Torah from Sinai, he gave it to Joshua, Joshua gave it to the elders, elders gave it to the prophets, prophets gave it to the men of the great assembly, Introduction for these people and how they fit in in the transmission of the Torah. And they told us lessons. And in fact, they told us three lessons. What are these three lessons? Number one, be deliberate in, 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 uh, in judgment. Number two, develop many disciples. And number three, make offense to the Torah. But these are two, these are, you know, two separate sections of, of this particular Mishnah. Correct? Would you agree with that, Ed? Mm, yeah. It makes sense, right? There's, there's the introduction. What are the questions here? One thing is that question, uh, make a fence for the question. Are you talking about, you know... Make a fence for the Torah? Kodesh? I mean, are they talking about a beamer? I mean, are they talking no, about a No, make a fence for the Torah means... Desegregated? means that if you're, if you're going to, you know, it's not that difficult to break the commandment, so you've got to actually do go beyond what it actually says... So you have less chance of breaking that commandment. You've got to kind of spread it out so you're not... Yeah, so um, what I mean to make offense with the Torah... Not literally offense. Not literally offense, but, uh, but it's but figuratively. Just mm -hmm. like 
Um, you know, if you have small children who like to take um, paper clips and stick them into the electric outlet, right? What do you do? You secure it. You make yeah. a fence. You make a fence. That means you make you fence means you can't get past it. Yeah. Right. I don't want you to be here. I'll make a fence over here. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's what uh, the, like rabbinic ed- rabbinic edicts are uh, when the rabbis say, "Hey, if someone touches, carries a pen in his pocket on Shabbat." They may very well come to write on Shabbat. And writing on the Shabbat is one of the 39 categories of work that are prohibited on Shabbat. Correct? Mm-hmm. So they said, hey, we're going to make a fence around, around the Torah, around the Shabbat observance, and say, not only you're not allowed to write, you're not allowed to carry a pen with you as well. That, 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 that's, what, that's what a fence means. That's a classic example of a fence. People would, uh, riding horses on Shabbat, is also a rabbinic prohibition. Why? Because they said it's possible if someone rides around a horse on Shabbat, they may pass a tree and pluck off one of the one of the branches or one of the leaves on Shabbat, which is, again, one of the 39 categories of work that are prohibited, prohibited on Shabbat. And therefore they said, not only should you not pluck a branch off the tree, you shouldn't ride a horse on Shabbat either. Right? Another example. Someone, uh, if someone is reading uh, from the light, now remember, primitive lights weren't like these kind of lights, either on or off. They were fire, yeah. or candles, candles. And, or, or you know, sometimes oil and wick. And sometimes you can adjust the wick or tip the, tip the if there's only a little bit left in your, in, your, in your glass cup that holds the oil, you might, and the, the, the light gets pretty weak. You ever watch candles when they burn out? They get very, they get very weak. So the rabbi said, "Hey, if someone's reading from from you know from light a candle, they may come to tip the candle, and thereby increasing the fire. And increasing a fire is one of the thirty nine categories of work that are prohibited on Shabbat. So they said you're not allowed to watch, you're not allowed to read uh, from the candlelight if no one else is with you, because you may come to tip it. Those are examples of making a fence for the Torah." But specifically regarding the first sentence, the first statement, Moses received the Torah from Sinai, and he gave it to Joshua, and Joshua to the elders, elders to the prophets, the prophets to the men of the great assembly. So Jerry already asked, what are we talking about? What, what Torah? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's mm-hmm. one question. But more importantly, or not more importantly, but also additionally, or more more generally, more more generally. How many books are there in the Mishnah? All the Mishnah? Sixty-three. Sixty-three books. And how many books does it tell us? Hey, this is the Torah. The Torah was given to us from Sinai to Moses, Moses to Joshua, Joshua to the to the elders, elders to the prophets, prophets made great something. How? Not in any one yeah. of the other sixty-two books. Mm. Why? Pray tell. Why, specifically in the book that deals with ethics, is it so important to tell you that this is Torah, and Torah's you know, been around for a long time, Moses got it from Sinai, he gave it to Joshua, Joshua gave it to the elders, elders to the prophets, the prophets, men of the assembly. Why specifically here is it so important to tell us the transmission of the Torah? Because it originated with God. Yeah, but, uh, but the laws of damages also originate with God. And maybe it should say, hey, when we talk about the laws of marriage and how you get married, so the beginning of the book that talks about marriage says, hey, there's three ways to get married. 
right? And obviously we know we're familiar with the presentation of the ring, right? Presentation of the ring, it's been around for thousands of years, right? And it's, it was a Jewish idea that was hijacked by everyone else, hmm. right? Because that's, that's one of the ways with which marriage um, happens, right? You just say, hey, wait a minute. Before I tell you anything about marriage, I want to tell you. Then Moses got to talk from Sinai, all right? And gave it to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, elders to the prophets, the prophets of the assembly. Oh, and the, how do you get married is one of three ways. Either presentation three, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Through a document, through, uh, you know, whatever. How come here in this in this book is it so important to tell to tell us before we get started with the book? Moses got the Torah from Sinai, gave it to Joshua. Joshua to the elders, elders to the prophets, prophets to the great assembly. And it's it's not it's not a, it's not an ethical lesson, I don't think. Maybe it is. It's not an ethic. Just a, I'm saying just a history of what transpired, you know, from one one point to another. Mm-hmm. But be deliberate in judgment. You're talking about, I don't know, just not being uh, shades of gray, but black and white, as far as judging uh, people, judging things that around us. So, um, prejudging. Us. Yeah, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, These three lessons that they taught are uh, are basically three ways to not make mistakes. You know, how many times have you read stories in America where they killed someone, capital punishment, and oh, years later they found the DNA evidence and they actually you know exonerated that exonerated that person. Right? Why is that? Because in America we're very wishy-washy with our with our judgment. We don't take the serious seriousness of of what it means to actually be a judge and be in charge of of, of, of deciding, you know, of, this, of making important decisions in other people's lives. If you read the Torah sessions that talk about how careful a judge has to be to not make mistakes, you, you read it today, it's shocking. It's shocking. How many different ordinances are in place to try to make to prevent errors? How many crazy things we'll do to make sure that we won't kill someone if he does not need to be killed? How we specifically do not have a prosecutor that's trying to prosecute, you know, irrespective of right and wrong. How we specifically are trying to find a way to get the guy off the hook so we shouldn't, God forbid, encounter a situation where we will kill someone who does not need to be killed. How we, we the cross-examination that we give to these to, to, to the witnesses is so thorough and so, you know, so broad and dealing with so many minute details. Like the, the example that I, they give is that two people, they, they obviously they, they, they cross-examine them separately and they ask them a multitude of questions and if they, if there's any incompatibilities, we, we throw out their testimony. So one of the examples is that the rabbi said, oh, I am so careful. I am so careful with my deliberation um, on, on capital capital punishment cases that I asked them. They said, oh, you, you saw a murder, right? I asked the two, the two witnesses separately. You saw a murder, really? What was the murder? By the tree, really? What kind of tree? Oh, it was a pomegranate tree. Both of them. How thick were the branches? Were they, were they this thick or were they thicker? 
That was the example of the questions. It means he's he's thoroughly, thoroughly examining to not that that's what it, to not make a mistake. That's what it means to be deliberate in judgment. And I'm just uh, I'm giving you the tip of the iceberg of how incredible and incredibly specific and how minute and how careful we are in our cases of um, capital punishment specifically, but even in other cases of 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 you know of giving punishments of any sort. Sure, even when we uh, can prove it was done and we're going to take that soul and uh, hang him or, or electrocute him or whatever, uh, it might take 10 or 15, 18 years uh, to accomplish that goal because we don't want to do the wrong thing. Well, you're saying in today in America? Yes. Well, I, I think that's actually a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And and I think death row is a terrible thing. Yes, it's like you're sitting there just waiting to be waiting to be fried. Mm-hmm. And and in the Torah, the opposite opposite is actually true. If someone is convicted of capital crime, right, a murderer, mm-hmm. you know, adultery, whatever, um, whatever the case is, different you know categories of of capital crime. So what we do is like this. First of all, you can only you can only this, there's three different levels of courts of law. Monetary courts of law, all you need is three people. Capital crime, capital crime is, you need 23 judges. It's a much bigger, much more diverse group of, of, of people to try to come up with more ideas. Mm-hmm. It's much more serious. And um, there's also a Sanhedrin, like you mentioned. The Sanhedrin is, you know, it's 71 judges and they sit in Jerusalem and they deal with macro issues related to Jewish people. Like they they're the ones who make the decision to go to war or not, etc. Mm. Um now the only way we could kill someone in a in a in a court uh consistent of twenty three uh judges is if you have thirteen to ten that say he's guilty. Right? And ironically if there is twenty three that say he's guilty and none of them say that he's not guilty then he's off the hook. Why? Is it considered a bloody court? It's well, it's not a bloody court, but it's considered a court that didn't do its due diligence. If you're a court of law and you're 23 competent rabbis who have a broad, broad knowledge of, of, of Torah, you at least one of you should find a way to get the guy off the hook. Mm-hmm. If you have 23 to nothing, it shows that you're incompetent. Mm-hmm. And if you're incompetent, an incompetent court cannot meet out capital punishment. Wow. And let's say let's say you have fifteen to, to eight, let's say. Right? He's guilty, right? What do they do? Everyone, they make a vote, right? Guilty, guilty, right? You have fifteen to eight. Everyone has to sleep over it. That's that's a preliminary vote. And you have to think about it, you have to stay up the whole night and tr- and all the people that said he was guilty, they have to try to find a way to get him off the hook. How careful we are in, 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 in our deliberation of of, just, of justice. They're not allowed to eat. Right? And then I have to try to find a way to get, to get the guy off the hook. Now, if you said yesterday in the preliminary vote that the guy is not guilty, you can no longer change your mind to say that the person is guilty. As opposed to, if you said he was guilty, if you said he was guilty, you can switch to say he's not guilty. Examples of how deliberate we are in, you know, in, in, in judgment. That's what it means on one level. But you said the vote has to be thirteen to ten. At least thirteen to ten. Oh, at least okay. So it means it can't be it can't be twelve to eleven. Okay. It has to be more than one majority. Okay, so 
it can it be between 13 and 22? But it can't be 23. Yeah, right. So if you have 22 that say guilty and they think about it overnight and it's still 22, he's still guilty. Uh, yes. But if it's 23 at the beginning, did they have to deliberate or is he automatically off the hook? Um, once the guy's off the hook, he's off the hook. So at 23, he's off the hook. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yes, so that, that's an inter- interesting thing yeah. and uh, interesting perspective. But I, I have some more questions. I want to read this slowly, the first sentence again, and let's see if we can pick out some questions. Okay, Moses received the Torah from Sinai and transmitted it to Joshua. Joshua to the elders. What did, what did Joshua do to the elders? He transmitted the Torah to the elders. I've got a question going back to the first. Okay. When Moses received the Torah, he received this orally from God. Not so God transmitted the Torah to Moses. Right. Moses right. to Joshua. But he didn't write it down right away. He, well, neither did Joshua. Okay, so this was all transmitted orally. Well, the, well there's the written Torah and the oral Torah. Yeah. But the, that, that's related to, to Jerry's question. I, I think when it says Torah, it means both. Okay. When we say Torah, it means both. It means the written Torah and the oral Torah. Mm. So Moses got the written Torah... And he, he, you know, he was dictated to him by God, and he wrote it down. And he was at the oral Torah, and he taught it over orally. Mm. But I think your question was like this. Moses received the Torah from Sinai. Moses transmitted it to Joshua. Joshua transmitted it to the elders. Elders transmitted it to the prophets. See the disconnect here? How come we don't say either... Moses received the Torah from Sinai. Joshua received the Torah from Moses. Elders received the Torah from Joshua. Or conversely, we could say, we could say, God gave the Torah to Moses. Moses gave the Torah to Joshua. Joshua gave the Torah to the elders. How come by Moses we say Moses received the Torah? And by everyone else, we say it was transmitted, transmitted, transmitted. Because Moses still had the Torah. He transmitted it to Joshua, but he didn't give it up. He still had it. Then he, both he and Joshua had it. Joshua transmitted So then both Moses, Joshua, and the prop, and the elders had it. And the elders transmitted. So Moses, Joshua, the elders, and the prophets, they all still had it. And we don't know. It was transmitted. Does the transmission mean... Like an email, it's broadcast. In other words, uh, how, what's the definition of the word transmitted to them? You know, how, how are we going to define the word transmitted? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we're allowed to Well, we, <laughs> we can take what the what the Midrash says of how they taught the Torah. Right? They taught it orally. Mm-hmm. Right? Moses. Right? Moses took Aaron. Right? And he said he taught Aaron the Torah. The Torah. And then Moses, and then just Moses and Aaron. And then uh, they brought in Joshua, and Moses taught it again to Aaron and Joshua. And then they brought in Aaron's kids, and then Moses taught it to Aaron, to Joshua, and to Moses' kids. And they brought in the leaders of the people, and then Moses taught it to Aaron, Joshua, Aaron's kids, and the leaders of the people. And then finally they brought everyone in, and Moses taught it again. So, it, you know, Moses taught it like five or five times, and Aaron heard it all those five times, and Joshua heard it one, etc. Means they did they did they did do it orally, but it seems that the way Moses received the Torah is totally different than the way anyone else received the Torah. 
Why is that? Because Moses got it from God. Moses was the prophet, the kind of prophet that God spoke to directly. As opposed to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all the prophets we have in, you know, in Jewish history, none of them ever had direct correspondence with God. What's, what, what's known in, 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 the, in, the, uh, in the Hebrew vernacular is aspaklaria mi'ira and aspaklaria she'enam mi'ira. Right? These are the scholarly terms for the different kinds of prophecies. The way Moses was prophesied to was, Moses, do this. Moses, this is what it says. Straight, direct. As opposed to the way all of the prophets um, were, um, you know, were communicated to by God. It was in the form of hints. They had a vision. And they understood that if I see a bloated pot, um, Isaiah, and I know that, that that's a lesson to me to teach the Jewish people. Oh, Jeremiah, right? you know, the book of Ezekiel, just full of what he saw. Right? And, and he interpreted what God showed him, and he, 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 he pulled from that, he gleaned from that the lesson or the, or the idea contained within, within that. Moses, the prophecy of Moses was totally different. It was 100% the will of God. 100% because it was, the, was communicated to him in that way. Therefore, we could say there's a tremendous difference. It means it was not up for his own interpretation. When, when I say something to you, or you say something to someone else, the way you perceive it, and the way that person hears it, mm-hmm. and perceives it, could be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Could be a little bit different. Moses received the Torah from God at Sinai. He received everything, exactly the way it was meant to be. There was no ambiguity to it. There was no room for any questions. There was no room for any discussion. Absolute clarity. From Moses on, from Moses on, we're going to be faced with a challenge of preserving the authenticity, preserving the Torah in its purest form, because it was always transmitted. And every time there's a transmission, you always run into the run the risk of of having different people hearing different things, understanding things differently, and that's why. In the whole discussion of Torah, you always have to make sure that you understand exactly what it's saying. And that's the challenge of writing down the Torah. Right? We know the oral Torah was oral for a reason. Why was it oral? Because when it's oral, it's much easier to prevent these mistakes from happening. It's much easier to, to, you know, to use insinuation, to use inflection, to make sure that there are no mistakes. And you don't hear something, you don't read something and, and, and see it one way, while well, I read something and see it the other way. Yeah, but it's also possible when it's oral that, yeah. that you don't remember All of it, yeah. Yeah, and, that's the, that, and we think that because we live in a time where everything's doodled and everything. Mm-hmm. Th- but think about 18 hours a day for 14 years, you'll remember it. Yeah. And that's what they all did, and that was like standard. Well, that's why, that's why when a scribe writes a Torah, he has to copy letter for letter from another Torah. He can't just do it from his head. Yeah, yeah but the but the schools that taught the oral Torah, that's the written yeah. Torah. And written Torah is almost no mistakes or almost no disruption. I'm saying it's it's identical. All Torahs are all identical. Mm-hmm. 305,805,805,805 no, letters and they're all identical, all the Torahs. Because, you know, there were many 
there were, you know, there were many things put in place, ordinances, to make sure that it was, you know, it's done accurately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with regards to the oral Torah, there, there, there's a tremendous need to make sure that it's transmitted or, uh, accurately. Moses, there was no such problem. Moses received a Torah from who? From God. From God. From God. Mm-hmm. What does it say in our Mishnah? Well, that's from Sinai means from the Sinai experience, okay. right? That's what it means. But why would it say? Why is it so important to remind us? Why is it so important to remind us that Moses got it at Sinai? We know who we got it from. That should be more important, I would think. Does that make any sense? Remember when the authors wrote the, down these words. Almost 2,000 years ago, right? 1,800 years ago. Every word was heavily calculated. Every word was weighed. There were thousands of people that edited this, this, the, 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 these documents, these books. There's no way that a word was just put in there. Oh, okay, Sinai. They put it in Sinai, whatever. Oh, you know, we, we could have wrote God, but we just wrote Sinai arbitrarily. It doesn't work like that. If it says Sinai, there's a lesson behind it. Yeah. I mean, your brother said last night, every letter has... Yeah, and, and you know, it's significance. It's significance. And all, all there's hundreds, probably thousands of commentaries written on, on, on chapters of the fathers. I have I have here uh, there's three inside here, there's two inside here, and there's also two inside here. Different, you know, different books with commentaries on so, this. This is just uh, like literally tip of eye, tip of the iceberg. But everyone jumps in. This is the kind of critical thinking uh, that, 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 you know, that. That's able to open up the wellsprings of, of ideas. So, so, is the Torah just transmitted orally un, until they were in Babylon and the, when the, they wrote it down? Wrote it down. No, the, the Mishnah was written in, in Israel. Not the, not the Mishnah. I'm talking about the Torah itself. No, the Torah. Moses wrote the Torah. It says in the Torah yeah. itself, Moses wrote, wrote it. But, but when they first wrote it into scrolls, is when they were in Babylon. Who says that? Well, that's what I've heard. Moses, it says, it says, it says in Deuteronomy, Moses wrote, wrote down these books, these scrolls. No, I think you're going to mix up with, between the Talmud. I could be. Yeah. No, the scrolls, Moses wrote the scrolls. And it says, it says at the end of Deuteronomy, and Moses wrote these scrolls and gave it to the Jewish people. Did you say the period of time it took to write the entire Torah? Yeah, so there's a little bit of a disagreement as to exactly when he wrote the Torah. Okay. Because we know that the, uh, the Sinai experience... Uh, is, is halfway through Exodus. So everyone agrees that at the time of the Sinai experience, God dictated to Moses to write Genesis and half of Exodus. The question is, from the end, from the middle to the end of Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which was the next subsequent 40 years, when was that written? Was that written all at the end of Moses' life, at the end of the 40 years? Or was written in different sections, as things happened, as God gave more instruction, it was written. But everyone agrees that Moses wrote almost all the Torah. Right? The last eight verses of the Torah are after Moses died. So, there's different opinions of who wrote the last eight words of the Torah. Some opinions say Moses wrote it prophetically, God instructed him to write it, um, you know, to write it posthumously. Uh, others say it was Moses who wrote it. Uh, oh, sorry, it was Joshua who wrote it. But uh, but for sure, the first um, 
five thousand four. I'm sorry. Five thousand eight hundred and thirty-seven verses of the Torah all written by Moses. The last eight verses. That's the way that it was a Moses or was a Joshua. But yes, um, yeah, that, that that's uh, that's with regards to the Torah. I, you know, recently, you know, hundred years ago, German uh, hundred years ago, German scholar by the name of Julius Wellhausen. He came up with a theory of saying, "Oh wait, this Torah, Bible, right? That everyone, all you know, the Jews, the Christians, the Muslims, all." You know, accept as being the word of God, as dictated to Moses, right? No, 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 no. And he came up with a documentary hypothesis. You know, the documentary hypothesis. I see the guy with the um, said there was a J author and a P author. Exactly, exactly. That's a that's a brand new idea. You know, it's a, it's and it's and it's coming from someone, by the way, who probably can't read Hebrew, right? People who don't know. You know, who have questions? I've read some of the some of, you know some of some of the dissertations, right? I've read some of the questions that they've had, right? And a fifth grader who lives in Israel has to answer off the majority of the questions. The majority of the questions that they have is because they don't know anything, and it's like it, you know, it's like uh, it's like you having an argument with someone uh, who doesn't speak English. You know what? Uh, you know, different slang, American slang. You can't. You know, you don't get anywhere with that. Because you know and they don't know. And I'm not familiar with the author. What you were saying? There, there, I mean, there's a theory that there, you know there's several authors. You know, and and they and they trace it back to certain things or political differences. That, you know, some people lived in Israel, some people lived in Judah, mm-hmm. the Southern Kingdom, the Northern Kingdom, and there were political differences. Mm-hmm. And that different, and the different chapters were meant to favor. You know. Politics of one area. This is remember. This is from from post enlightenment, mm-hmm. right? In the nineteenth century, when uh, the scholars of universities were trying to distance themselves or distance the Bible, mm-hmm. the Jewish and the and the, and the Christian Bible mm-hmm. from being just baloney. It's all stories. It's all foibles. It's all folklore. It's all legend. Yeah. It's all baloney. Actually, I was thinking of bringing it in tonight, but I forgot because I wanted to show it to you. The magazine we get from the, you know, the Reform magazine mm-hmm. we get really pissed me off a lot. This is what I read in there. But uh, a guy wrote, and this is the Passover issue, a guy wrote a whole article on why we were never slaves in Egypt. Yeah, and, and, and I, I I get very I get very uh, riled up about this. Was this the same issue? Uh, for it's, the last issue the, it's the last issue we got. About the Jews all over the world? Yeah, mm-hmm. and, yeah, countries. And I, I didn't read his whole article because started reading. I got mad. So, yeah, it's it's uh, and we have we have tons of evidence that it's correct, and the Torah predicts things. Just think about the state of Israel. How many times in history has there been a nation dispersed from its land, and two thousand years later, um, come back to their land and and reinstitute a state there? How many times has it happened in history? Never. Once, once. happened once, mm-hmm. and. Why is that? And the reason the reason why is because when you get dispersed from your land, you disappear. The Torah predicts the Jews will be bounced out of Israel. They'll stay. Few, they'll remain few in number. They'll be spread across the whole world. They'll stay a nation. They'll come back to Israel years later and rebuild the state. The Torah predicts that. 
The Torah predicts the Holocaust. You know, Holocaust is not, not, a, not a subject that people, a lot of people are comfortable talking about. The Torah predicts the Holocaust. And I'll tell you something even more. And this will blow your brains out. Literally blow your brains out. Ready? Okay, it's a small crowd, so I'm willing to share it. If you were to take the Torah and count all the verses in the Torah, sentences in the Torah, the number you would come out to be would be 5,845. This is how many sentences there are in the Torah. How many sentences? Sentences. 5,845. Now, the Jewish calendar starts from Adam. So if you ever heard the number 5, 7, 7, 3, this is the Jewish year. The Jewish year starts from Adam, starts from the beginning of the Torah, right? And it's 5,773. Okay? You're like, what's the significance of this, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you were to take every year, so this is this year, five, 2013 is five is 5,773. If you were to take a verse in the Torah and you were to put verse number one to be year number one, mm-hmm. and verse number 20 to be year number 20, and to verse number 1,000 to be year number 1,000, and to verse number 5,773 to be... Verse 5,773. And you were to go to 1939. The beginning of the most disastrous genocide in the history of mankind. And the most unlikely of events that have ever happened. In the most unlikely of places. In the most cultured, sophisticated country in the entire world. Will systematically eliminate, will try to eliminate the Jews. And... Get them out of get them out of uh, of Europe. Of Europe yeah. The Jews were living in Europe for more than a thousand years in total, well, not in total peace, but completely, completely. The center, the net, you know, the center, the epicenter of the Jewish activity was in Europe for a thousand years, and like that, in one instant, they were destroyed, totally destroyed, totally obliterated, and sent and, and sent to the United States and to Israel. And just like in one sec, in one in one second, poof, one area of Jewish vibrancy closes its door, Israel opens up and becomes a new center of Jewish vibrancy. If you were to take the year 1939, which corresponds to the year 5000, uh, how did I make a six backwards? Six, that six. Oh, Oops, I'm doing it backwards. 5699, right? You, everyone here following with me? Yeah. And you were to look at the year, at the verse number 5,699, you will find that the Torah predicts the Holocaust. Not only does it predict the Holocaust, it predicts what year it's going to happen. Because the verse that says, I will violently remove you from your land with anger, with wrath, with fury, and cast you to a different land, like this very day, is in verse number 5,699, which corresponds to the year 1939, um, 
which is the beginning of the Holocaust. I'd have to go to the other building to get a copy of it. Oh. You have, you said there's no... Uh, it's in our sanctuary, which is in the other building. Yeah. Boom. What do you say about that? Hmm. What do you say about that? Phenomenal. Yeah. Never heard that. Yes. Not only does the does the Torah predict the Holocaust, it tells you what year it's going to happen. What, what's what's the chapter and verse number of that? Um, this is in Deuteronomy. And if you get me a book, if you get me a what's I'll, I'll uh, if you get me a, well, it's, a it, copy. it's in the other building, and I don't want to unlock the other building. Oh, it's not building. Building. Do we have one? Um, I'll find it for you. I might be able to find it. I don't think. Let me look at No, the did the rabbis of the time, in that year, yeah. when they were reading through uh, Deuteronomy, and to that chapter, that exact you know, uh, sentence. Did they know? Yes. Or did they... Did they have a feeling that was going to happen? Um, I'm, I don't know. It's uh, I'm trying to see. Let's see if I can find it. Do you have a, uh, a Musar in uh, Atlanta area? Um, Anybody doing anything like that? I'm sure, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Trying to figure out, I can't find it here. Yeah, so had this program. <laughs> but it's in it's in the uh, it's towards the end of Deuteronomy. Hey, you 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 know what you could do? I may have. I may actually. You know what you could do? This is the end of the Torah. Count backwards, right? A hundred and forty-six verses. A hundred and forty-six verses. Hundred and forty-six verses. Um, from the end of the Torah is where, is where you'll see that. Now, lastly, I want to show you guys here something really cool. So I have my, my grandfather, if you heard of him, Rabbi Shlomo Wolby, he was a great Musar leader and master, probably the most influential uh, in the post-World War II uh, yeshiva world. And one of his students said... What is this? this is. It's in it's the tour in a year. I've got it. In, it's in the. It's got a download. because I got it in the cloud. It's so one of his students wanted to figure out. Hey, wait a minute. The transmission of the Torah. Let's see if I can figure out how many years it's been since, or how many different links in the chain. Oh. Well, where is this? I don't oh, know. Okay. Day. That just goes by day, so that's like. Oh, so you want to learn the Torah in the day. So, could you fast forward all the way to the end? And just. What is that? The entire Torah in your phone? Yeah, it says the Torah, and I download it. It says the Torah in a year, so I don't. Oh, I don't know. I don't. Yeah. So it should be there. This I'm is, not sure if it just gives the weekly parshat or. Yeah, this is. Uh, this is this is at the beginning of Leviticus right now. And then you get to the end of. Uh, no, I can't. It's it's a it's it's in the parsha called I think Nitzavim. Let me go to the. It's in the beginning of Nitzavim. Here we go. Cover table of contents. Beginning table of contents. Oh, not available in this. Day. 
the table entrance there. Okay, well this has six okay, this is sixty three hundred and forty five locations. And if we do the math let's see. Yeah, it's it's there. I could I could I can email you if you want. The torch is only in Houston. Yes. Yes. And my daughter was saying she went to uh, the rabbi that married my daughter in Atlanta. Went to she went to school with Rabbi Brahms. Was just a coincidence. Oh, real? Wow. Take a look at this document. Take a look at the at the last one. Oh, he, he, he last he, night. your brother showed this last night. Yeah. What is this? Which one? So this is um, a teacher student list. Shlomo Wobi. That's yes, your that's my grandfather. Your grandfather. Yes, from means teacher to student directly from top left. God at God at Sinai. Moses, Joshua, Pinchas, Elish, Samuel, David. Obviously, King David. We know. Achia, Elijah, right? Prophet Elijah, you've heard these names. Elisha, you go further down, you see Isaiah, all these famous names. Jeremiah, at the you know, further further down. Uh, you'll see, um, and it will all with the dates, the dates that they died. And you'll see teacher, student, all the way from God. Yeah, I think the one your brother had last night had his name at the bottom of it. Yeah. yeah. Your brother? That's nice. <laughs> And if you take a look, let's say, at this um, commentary that I have over here, you see Rashi. Rashi's on the list here. Rashi is, boom. He died 11.05. You see that. That's Rashi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we have his, his commentary. And we have his, and each one of these uh, rabbi-student relationships is documented by at least four sources. At least four sources that show Oh, this was the rabbi of this person, and this was his students, these were the disciples. Each one of these connections, I mean, from modern times, from today, 2005, from my grandfather, all the way back to 1300 before the Common Era, the, 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 the uh, Sinai experience. Moses. Direct, unbroken link. You know, and you'll, you'll, you'll look at the, take a look at the Mishnah that you have in front of you, and take a look at the first name. Take a look at the second Mishnah. Shimon. Shimon HaTzadik. Shimon the Righteous. Mm-hmm. Where is he? That's just a 310. 310. Very good. Shimon HaTzadik. Shimon the Righteous. Mm-hmm. And um, the next one is Antidnosh Yish Soko. Antidnosh of Soko. What's the one right after that? It's the next. It's the next Mishnah. It's the next. Uh, oh yeah, it sure is. And he's the next one on the list. Yeah. And he's the fourth. He's the fourth one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see my name here, Yehuda. 
How do you like that, huh? This this commentary, Ruach Chaim, which means the spirit of life, um, was written by Rabbi Chaim Valajin. Here's your man, Rabbi Chaim Valajin. Mm-hmm. See, we have commentaries right here on the table with us right now um, of at least two people, you know, that are on this list. See, it's already 8.54. Taking that mad overtime. But I'm having a great time. Um, but I, I think that... Um, yes, sure. Some of the listed is, of course, it's Rebbe, and some of the listed is Rob. Very, very good thing that you noted. Yeah. And the reason why that is so, oh, well, some of them. And you have, of course, uh, here. From, yeah. There's something called smicha. The term smicha, have you heard the term? Yes, ordination. Ordination. Mm-hmm. But it, it comes from, it comes from, uh, there's modern day smicha and then there is historical smicha. Uh, there's the historical smicha, which was that you could only give smicha to someone else. You could only ordinate someone as a rabbi if you received um, smicha from a rabbi. Someone who received, 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 received from Moses. Okay. That stopped, right? And the Romans stopped it. And you take a look at stories. You take a look at Sanhedrin 14, um, or 13 or 14. Uh, a, there's a story about one guy who tried to do it and the Romans came and they killed him. They stopped it. Around this point, um, they stopped smicha. This point in history. So, from here on, um, you'll see only rabs. Yes. It's not rabbi. Um, and even prior to that, it was only given in Israel. So half the Jews live in Israel, half the Jews are living in, in Babylon, right? Out east. The ones, only the ones in Israel had the title rabbi. rabbi. And then you come down to the bottom and you start seeing rabbi. Well, rabbi, but that's, but that's, but remember, that's the, the modern smicha. The modern, it's the modern, it's not the same thing. So I always have smicha. Um, and I'm also a rabbi, but that doesn't mean that it's the same, yeah. it's the same rabbi I didn't get from somebody from somebody from someone mm-hmm. got from Moses. That was, that was stopped. If you have a business card, would it say rabbi? Or yeah, rabbi? of course. Yeah. Rabbi, yeah. yeah. And, but that's that's because the modern term rabbi doesn't mean what it used to mean. Okay. But in the, in the Talmud, in the Mishnah, it, you always notice that the people who lived in Israel up to a certain point were called rabbi, and the people who lived in Babylon are called rav. Okay. That's an interesting thing that you you pointed out. Um, I just wanted a mar before rav. Um, well, there's yes, some people called mar. That's 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 remember at that point. People were living. You take a look at those years. So you know the seventh, eighth, ninth century mm-hmm. were times where people were living in Babylon, in Iraq, primarily, and obviously they uh, they adopted some names and styles of names. And one of the styles was called was called Mar, or like it means master. Mm-hmm. But some of them were called Marav, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, just like 
um, uh, the rabbis in 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 Germany were called hachaver, which means like the friend. Uh, the uh, Sephardic rabbis are called chacham, the wise man. You know, it's just the, you know every different culture and society has their own little you know kinks. But I wanted to answer one thing that I and the, well, this will end. One thing that I I think is important, and that that was the question of. I, there were so many things that we left unanswered, like why does it say sign and not God, and yeah. etc. But um, I want to just say this point, and that is that um, why over here specifically is it necessary to tell us the the transmission or the order of transmission? Why specifically at the introduction of the book of ethics is it so important to tell us this is a um, part of the Torah, the Torah was given from God to, God to Moses, Moses to Joshua, etc. We said there's 63 books and only one of them has this preamble. How come specifically over here is it necessary to give us the preamble, God gave the Torah to Moses, etc. So I was thinking that specifically in a book that deals with ethics, it's important to say that this comes from God. And what God considers to be ethical is ethical. And ethics cannot be up to the determination of a certain society. The Romans, they said, if a child was born with any imperfection of any sort, it's ethical to drop the child into a, in, into a well and kill them. That's the most ethical thing to do. Not only that, as recently as you know, Hitler said that Hitler, one, in one of his mm-hmm. books, right, right, he wrote, and, he, and one of the laws that they passed in 1937 uh, was that if a child is born with any any imperfection at all, if you know the child has a cleft lip, you have to kill them, and that's ethical. And I, we view that as not ethical, and we view um, what the Romans did. They you know the, you know they thought, hey, if you you, you know if you shoplift the belt from J.C. Penney, it's ethical to kill you. And we say it's not. So what is it really? Is it just up to the whims of society? Whatever whatever direction the wind blows, whatever the lobbyists in Washington tell us is ethical, is ethical and what's, you know, and other... Is, is adultery ethical? It, it, it's, it's interesting that in today's society, adultery is it's kind of fine, but murder is not. While in past societies, the opposite was true. Adultery was absolutely out of the question. Murder, not so bad. Mm-hmm. Book of ethics. Ethics are immutable. Ethics cannot be up to the determination of man to decide what's right and what's wrong. Morality comes from God. Morality comes from God, exactly. And, that's, and the second you make ethics and morality something that's up to society to determine what's ethical and what's not, what do you get? Jews are pigs. Mm-hmm. Right? What do you get? You get, you know, dare I say, but you get that abortion, mm-hmm. woman's rights. Now, abortion is not as, uh, in Jewish law, is not as clear-cut as, as life begins at conception. I don't want to get into that discussion. Mm-hmm. But 50 years ago, abortion was totally, totally taboo. Nowadays, if you just open your mouth once and say, hey, uh, maybe the child is alive. Hey, I hear a heartbeat. You whoa, whoa, my own body, right? You get, and, you know, you know, and what's ethical? What's not ethical? What there saying? has to be something which is a moral compass. The compass doesn't change. Or same thing in the gay communities. Absolutely the same. Exactly the same. Yeah. Means, 
I, I, I study every week with a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. I said, show me the DSM-3. The DSM is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is the book that describes psychiatric disorders. Mm-hmm. And up to the DSM-3, it had homosexuality as sexual deviant, which with deviant that was, that was treated. Mm-hmm. And that's as recently as 1983. So then it was considered psychiatric disorder. Now it's totally normal, right? And yeah. we're totally championing it. Well, so yeah, it's up. Is it, it is morality just? Well, nowadays, if you say you believe marriage is between a man and a woman, you're a hater. You're a hater. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think specifically, if we, if you want to, if you want to have real ethics, you have to know that there's a compass. And just like a compass, the north doesn't change, and you can't say, "Oh, I want north to be that direction." North is north. Yeah. Right? We call it a moral compass because just like a compass, it has fixed uh, it has it has it has fixed qualities. In a book that starts with ethics, we tell you that this is part of the Torah. And it was given to us by God. And that makes it moral. Our morals come from God, and that's what makes it what God considers moral is moral, what God considers moral immoral is immoral. Irrespective of what of what your society says. And interestingly, society has come around pretty much to to the Jewish opinion on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Value of human life is one example. We were screaming value of human life for years on top of our lunch mountaintops. And no one was listening to us. Mm-hmm. And just the past 300 years, humanism, right? As if it's a brand new thing. We've been saying it in the Mishnah, right? Every man is like a whole world. You kill a man as if you destroy a whole world. We've been saying it way, way before that, mm-hmm. when it was totally out of the, uh, out of the, the, you know, the moral sphere of, of, of society. We were saying it, and it's all around now. And nothing that we stand for today is different than what we stand for, stood for two thousand years ago, or in two thousand years from now. Because if it's if it's if it's from God, if it's part of this line of tradition from God to Moses, Moses to Joshua, it's immutable. You know, you're making me think now was God uh, gave the Torah to Moses. Yes. And when some of these, quote, Christian friends, uh, God never gave them a book. You know, I just, just happen to be thinking about that as you're speaking about uh, God giving something to something. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm just, no, no, just a comment. It's true. So they, <laughs> they adopted our book. Yeah. And then add on, and then add on to it. No, and then abrogated it, mm-hmm. and said, "Oh, you don't need to do anything besides for just mm-hmm. uh, accept Jesus as your." Which is a rabbi on TV preaching? You know, there's two of them. This what? Rabbis preaching Christianity. Well, so what makes him a rabbi? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's that's my thing. You know what? This is what I can understand. I was speaking to a conservative rabbi, and I said, "How could you be a rabbi?" I wasn't telling him this. This is what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. How could you say that? How could you teach Torah on one hand and teach the wisdom and, and the ethics of Judaism on one hand? On the other hand, you say, oh, Torah, well, it, was, it wasn't really Moses who wrote it. There was redactors. There's the J and there's the E and there's the, right? And there's the V and the, and the you know, or the L and the D, right? How could you, how could you on one hand consider yourself a rabbi? On the other hand, say, oh, Judaism, Torah, tradition, it's all baloney. It's, it, to me, it's the same thing as a rabbi getting up there and espousing Christianity. Yeah. It's not, you know, yeah. you're not a rabbi then, right? right. If you're a rabbi, it means, you know, your allegiance is to the Jews. The Jews, yeah. You know, that, that's my thing. Yeah. You know, 
so you just say, hey, listen, I I don't want to be Jewish or whatever. I don't want to feel it. And, and, and because I don't believe the Torah is true. But don't say, I'm Jewish. I'm a rabbi. And I teach Torah on one hand, while on the other hand saying, it's not real. It's not real by God. It's all, you know, Jews never went to Egypt, right? It's all baloney. It's all fairy tales. And it's all, it's all fairy tales. Go become an accountant. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my point. Anyhow, it was a great pleasure. I'm sorry I went over time. Sorry, we didn't have a greater crowd here. Yeah. Well, it's good. I'm going to go off. We can have more emails next week. I wish.